0: As high as the walls were in Jericho, as high as the emotions were for Israel in watching the walls fall in Joshua chapter six is how devastating is Joshua chapter seven. If Joshua chapter six is as high as you could possibly be watching the Lord bring down a city for his name and his renown, then Joshua chapter seven is as low as you can get. Israel is devastated in Joshua chapter 7. They're struck with fear and they're struck with paranoia. And it is so bad that they think maybe the conquest won't even happen. And God wants to teach Israel and you three things in Joshua chapter 7. These three things are the things that Achan missed. And because he didn't understand these three things, Achan was on the wrong footing altogether. The three things are that sin is cunning, sin is communal, and sin has consequences. It's cunning, it's communal, and it has consequences. So if you would, please stand with me as we read from Joshua chapter 7. This is the word of the Lord. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there for they are few. So about 3000 men went up there from the people and they fled before the men of Ai and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as the Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas! O Lord God, why have you brought this people "'over the Jordan at all to give us "'into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? "'Would that we have been content "'to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say "'when Israel has turned their backs "'before their enemies? "'For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants "'of the land will hear of it and will surround us "'and cut off your name from the earth. "'And what will you do for your great name?' And the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I WILL BE WITH YOU NO MORE UNLESS YOU DESTROY THE DEVOTED THINGS FROM AMONG YOU. GET UP, CONSECRATE THE PEOPLE AND SAY, CONSECRATE YOURSELVES FOR TOMORROW. FOR THUS SAYS THE LORD GOD OF ISRAEL, THERE ARE DEVOTED THINGS IN YOUR MIDST OF ISRAEL. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord." and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. And then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned him with fire and they stoned them with stones and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger And therefore to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. This friends is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Listen, this is a, you can be seated. This is a hard text. I don't know when the last time you heard a sermon on Joshua chapter seven was, but this text is tough. But it wants to teach us three things. Sin is cunning. It is communal and it has consequences. So let's talk about those things together, shall we? First, sin is cunning. The word cunning means to be skilled at achieving your own end by deception or let me illustrate it this way. In the early 19th century, there were a group of men in many major American cities as they were burgeoning in light of the industrial revolution. They were going around household by household and they were telling people that we want you to invest in the new industrial commodities of steel, of coal, of oil. And even some of these men began to sell household products like soap, even some pets like puppies, like puppies. And they were incredibly, incredibly winsome men. And people were overwhelmed by their sense of confidence and they called them confidence men. We know them as con men because thousands of people began to become conned out of their hard-earned wealth because men with a great sense of confidence were cunning and they deceived them and they took from them what is theirs. Listen. Con men hid things from people They didn't tell them the whole truth. And we hide things too, don't we? I mean, we hide things. Every one of you has a place in your house where you hide valuables, where you hide special papers. And to hide things isn't a bad thing, it's a very, very good thing. We want to protect ourselves from identity theft. But you also hide something that is not good. Because you hide your sin. And the destructive thing about sin is that when you hide it, you become both the con artist and the conned. Because you coddle your sin. Sin is cunning, it uses your own skill against you to achieve desired ends. It convinces you that it's not that big of a deal. Achan sees this Babylonian robe. It's a beautiful robe from Shinar. It was priceless. It was beautiful. It was rare. And Achan finds 200 shekels of silver and a bar worth 50 shekels of gold, and he sees it. They're taking the city, and the people who lived in that town had already fled. And Achan, Joshua's clear on the other side of the city, Like, nobody would know. And so he sees it, he takes it, and he hides it. It's the same pattern David used with Bathsheba, wasn't it? It's the same classic symptoms. And you know what? We are experts at seeing, taking, and hiding because our greatest defense against self-awareness is our own ability to self-deceive. Self-deception is a shadowy phenomenon by which we pull the wool over our consciences. Have you ever heard of the slogan, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? You know, this phrase... You know, this phrase, is, it's, it's been the inspiration of um, the Hangover series of movies. It's been the uh, inspiration for uh, rock groups to produce uh, songs. It's even Laura Bush has quoted this very famous phrase in one of her speeches. It is the only, only marketing campaign that I know of that has actually banned. Well, that's not true. There are others, I'm sure. But it is banned from Super Bowl commercials. Did you know that? Interesting, isn't it? That phrase turned 10 not long ago. And when they were trying to create this phrase, they created it in the back room of a marketing company in Las Vegas to try to create a way for us to get millions of people to come to Sin City, to come and gamble, to come and enjoy, to try to help Las Vegas be the place where what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And I want you to listen to the rationale that this marketing team put together. This is what they said in that boardroom. It is so true of my own heart with regard to Sin and of yours. The emotional bond between Las Vegas and its customers was freedom. Freedom on two levels, freedom to do things and see things and eat things and wear things and feel things. In short, the freedom to be someone we could not be at home and freedom from whatever we wanted to leave behind in our daily lives. Just thinking about Vegas made the bad stuff go away. And at that point, the strategy became clear. Speak to that need, make an indelible connection between Las Vegas and the freedom that we all crave. But of course, there's a problem, isn't there? It's not true. Nothing stays hidden. But yet sin is so cunning that it convinces you to pull the wool over your consciences and to hide it, just like Achan. We deny, we suppress, we minimize what we know to be true. We assert, we elevate what we know to be false. We beautify ugly realities and then we sell ourselves the beautified versions. We become our own dupes, the con man and the conned in the same body, playing the role both of the perpetrator and of the victim. Listen, we know the truth and yet we don't know it because we persuade ourselves of exactly the opposite. We actually forget that certain things are wrong and that we have done them. And to the extent that we are self-deceived, we occupy a twilight zone in which we make up a reality as we go along. Friends, hear me. We live in a twilight zone that says the, two, the shortest distance between two points is a labyrinth. A complex maze of self-justifications that get us where we want to go. Because sin is so, it has you. It grips your heart like a snake. And it slowly squeezes so you do not feel the pressure. Sin is cunning. Self-deception is our strongest drug abuse. It is a narcotic And it numbs us, it tranquilizes us, it disorients us, it suppresses our spiritual central nervous system. So much so that what's devastating about it is that it makes us tone deaf to God's grace so that we don't understand or hear God's grace, nor do we recognize his work in the performance of other people. Eventually, we make ourselves so biblically unmusical, so biblically illiterate that we don't even hear the notes of the gospel at all, and together, altogether. One writer has said that moral beauty begins to bore us, and the idea that the human race needs a savior sounds quaint. Because of our self deception, our lack of consciousness, our sins, we become deaf, tone deaf to God and to his grace. It's cunning. Sin looks beautiful. but it's a lie. And listen, the heart of sin is the persistent lie that sin is not that big of a deal. And it's the refusal to tolerate it And the reason why in our service, for example, we have a confession of faith, which for some of you feels very strange, kind of feels weird to confess your faith, is because we are trying to help each other give voice to what is true of our hearts. Because the more honest you are with the depth of your sin, listen, that that is not discouraging. That is wonderfully healing for you, because that means that the beauty of Jesus is even greater. Because look what he has had to bridge to bring you to himself. People are striving for liberation all over the place in Oklahoma. Listen, Oklahoma is becoming very much like when Lauren and I lived in Princeton, New Jersey. Owasso feels much more like Princeton now than it did when we first moved here five years ago. People are not afraid to tell you that they don't go to church anymore. They're not afraid to tell you that they don't believe in anything. I mean, even even just this morning I met a man who has a Muslim father and a Christian mother and he doesn't believe either one of them. And we tend to pursue liberation in all these other ways. But listen to me, if you do not pursue liberation in the, in the work of Jesus for you, the only one who could be perfect for you to live the life you couldn't live and die the death you should have died, then you're leaving your liberation up to yourself your own naked, vulnerable self. And do you want that kind of pressure? Your situation is far worse. The gospel teaches us that sin is cunning. And it teaches us that we have no hope without the work of Christ. And it's fierce and it's honest. But that is what Israel, God wanted to teach Israel in Judges chapter seven. It's just a cloak from Shinar. It's not that big of a deal. (sighs) Why do alcoholics go through years of self-denial? Why do men who beat their wives talk about it in a euphemistic way as though it's not that big of a deal? And why do wives who are beaten by their husbands go back to him again and again because they believe the lie they've told about why that happened? It is self-deception. Sin is cunning. You have to call it what it is. Do not pull the wool over your eyes. Let the gospel raise the wool up to see us in all of our sinfulness and to see the beauty of Christ in all of his glory. Soren Kierkegaard said that the consciousness of sin is the essential condition for understanding Christianity. The very proof of Christianity's being the highest religion is that no other religion has given such a profound and lofty expression to our significance that we are sinners. Sinners. Sin is cunning. Second, sin is communal. Now, most of us, when we think of sin, we think about our own individual sin. We think about our sin not affecting anybody else. It's our private sin. We think about hiding it because nobody else would even know if it's hidden. But that's not the way the Bible talks about sin. And that is certainly not the way that he talks about it in Joshua chapter 7. It's just me. It's not that harmful to other people. We say that all the time. But God's word says that thinking about things individualistically like that is just not true. Because we belong to a fellowship of people. We belong to a body. Just like Achan belonged to Israel. So you, if you're a member in the church, you belong to that church, to that body. And together... What you do, as secret as you might think it is, affects the rest of us. Listen to the way that that, uh, it says it here in Joshua chapter 7. It says that the people of Israel broke faith. Verse 11, it says that Israel has sinned, that they have transgressed, that they have taken, that they have stolen, they have lied, but only Achan sinned. But that's not the way God thinks of it, is it? the sin of the one affected the many. Dare I say it this way, that God is more concerned in Scripture with communal sin than he is with individual sin. Oh, he's concerned about individual sin. But your individual sin affects the community. The reason why we think about our sin individually the the way we do is because it's a product of, if you know anything about our history, of Western Enlightenment thinking, which means that at the end of the 18th century, there was the notion of autonomous individualism and that what we believe to think about ourselves is really just relevant to us. And with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, with the lack of there being a a nature of community to fuel everything from commerce to the church to family, things became very individualized. And we have carried that into the 21st century. So that when you think about yourself spiritually, you first think about yourself individualistically. That is not the way you should begin to think about yourself spiritually. And I know that I'm pushing on a lot of r- strange ideas because we were raised in an environment where your education is individual. You drive a car by yourself, unless you want to get in the HOV lane, then you carpool. You, you feel like you're always alone, but you are made to be in community. And even your individual sin is communal. And we say, well, that's just not fair. And we want to bicker about it with God. But God's word is very clear. To think about your sin individualistically is to think about your sin incompletely. And until you recognize that your individual sin, as hidden and as private as you may think it is, affects the community, until you can understand that, you don't really begin to understand what community is like, what family is like, what church membership is like. Listen, uh, Tess and Kyler are here. When, when, at their wedding a, a couple of weeks ago, I said, listen, these two come and enter into their marriage advisedly and reverently. They don't come unadvisedly or irreverently. They come advisedly and they come reverently. Why? Because when you enter into marriage, it is a big deal. You're covenanting to another person for life. It is a covenant. And the same can be said of church membership, couldn't it? Because when you join a church, you are covenanting, you're covenanting with other believers to say, my sin affects you. My baggage is your baggage and your baggage is now my baggage. And when people come to take the new member vows at our church, they are saying, I am yoking myself with you because sin is communal, and it affects one another. And friends, that's why we need each other. That's why community groups are so important in our church. They're not just the thing that churches do. They're a way for us to know each other Because do you know what happens when a church is able to confess their sins? When there's a culture where the pastor of the church can confess his anxiety, his OCD, his control tendencies, his need for prayer. Do you know what happens when a church begins to do that? There is gospel-liberating healing in marriages in that church. Our children begin to understand that the church is not just a sham or a show. It is built upon the truth that Jesus Christ is our only righteousness, and we need to be reminded of that every single week as we come to repentance. We have children who leave school, leave our houses, and they go to church when they're in college. Why? Because they've seen what it means to worship with mom and dad for years. They know the hard plowing of what it means to be a Christian. They're not under any illusions. It becomes a church that becomes fiercely honest in a place where you can be normal. It's a church, dare I say it, that begins to change the city. Listen, sin is cunning. It is communal and sin has consequences. There are two consequences of Achan's sin. One is for Israel and one is for Achan himself. For Israel, they are before what appeared to be a very weak enemy at AI. And the spies are sent out and they said, listen, listen, we just knocked down Jericho. Listen, don't send everybody there. Just send two or three companies, just send two or 3000 men. And they went and they fought against Ai. And what happens? It's the only recorded place in all of the conquest where Israel's men die in battle. 36 of them die. They are routed and they go on the run and Israel is completely demoralized. It says in verse 15 that their hearts became like water. They melted. And God here calls Israel to account. And people, scholars, commentators, search this chapter and they list all these reasons of why Israel was defeated. And some will say, well, they didn't pray enough. Or they got cocky because they just conquered Jericho. Well, those things might be part of it. But that's not the point of this text. The reason why they were routed is very simple. Achan sinned. and it affected all of Israel. Let me paraphrase what one commentator has said, and I want to read these words very carefully. They're strong words, so hear them. Would it be going too far to say that the apparent absence of god in various segments of church today may be due to our unwillingness to purge evil from our midst by the costly exercise of church discipline. Generally the contemporary church errs on the side of laxity. Our problem is that we prefer the tolerance of men to the praise of god. Church church what? Church discipline? That may be the first time you've ever heard of that in the church. Whenever somebody joins the church, you see, they are joining a church and they are coming under the discipline of the church. That is, that they are agreeing to submit themselves to the elders of the church that the Lord has called. And they are agreeing to be held accountable both for what they believe and for what they do. And the Bible assumes that every growing Christian is a member of a church where the gospel is preached. And the elders of this church have two primary responsibilities. We have two responsibilities. To guard our people and disciple them in what they should believe, and to hold one another accountable in our morals, what we do. And it is a great temptation even of the elders of the church to say, oh, just, it's okay if you're persisting in sin. We don't wanna talk about it, just come. Just come fill the seats. But that's not what God's leaders are called to do. And yes, there are examples of abuses of church discipline. You perhaps know of some stories of the abuse of church discipline, but it is part and parcel of being a member of the church. In fact, every one of us, are under church discipline when you hear the gospel preached and you're convicted of sin, even as I am. And every one of us are under the discipline and admonition of the Lord when you come to the Lord's table in just a minute because not everyone can come, only those who have a professing relationship with Jesus. But church discipline is assumed. And one of the most, one of the scourges of the church today, one of the greatest challenges of the gospel going forth in the church today are not people changing churches. There are perfectly good times for people to change churches. I'm not talking to those of you who are transitioning to a new church. But the scourge of our existence as Christians in this part of the country is church shopping. And what I mean by that is that we go to one church for whatever reason and then we go to another and then we go to another, and we go to another. Do you go to church? Of course. But over time, you drift between churches, and you try the latest one, and churches are being planted all over the place, which is wonderful, and we've planted our own, and we're gonna continue to plant churches. It's great. But you miss with the heart of what it means to be a people together, because your sin affects me, and my sin affects you, and we are in this thing together together. And Joshua chapter seven assumes that God's covenant people are operating and doing life and growing in the gospel together, which is why coming to worship is so important. Not because I care how many people are here or because the elders are counting noses. The deacons do that. No, but because we want you here because there are only certain aspects of the gospel that I can see, that my children can see, that each other can see because you're here. Your story is so different than mine. We need each other here in the voices as you sing, in the beautiful sound of the reverberation of our voices. We need you here in worship because it is like fine wine. Over time, you get healthier as you drink it in moderation. You get healthier. Sin is cunning, sin is communal and sin has consequences. It not only had consequences for Israel, but it had consequences for Achan. It's clear that God's judgment was severe in this matter, isn't it? It says that Achan transgressed the covenant of the Lord. It wasn't that he took 20 shekels of silver, a 50 shekel bar of gold, and a coat. Verse 15 says that he transgressed the covenant Of the Lord because he had done an unrighteous thing in Israel. And we say to ourselves all the time, listen, it's not that bad. Why? Listen, God doesn't notice the little things. And we make little sleepy statements like, it's just one more time, it's going to be okay. And I'm saved by grace. May grace abound so I can just do it. Nothing is hidden. And God is holy, and He requires perfection, and He wants you to be holy like Him. And of course we can't be perfect, we've already messed it up. But Achan was taken, and it doesn't just say it was, his name was Achan. It says that he was Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. He was attached to his family, to his tribe, to his people. And so, friends, are you. Man, if you're struggling with a hidden sin and nobody in this room knows about it, and the Holy Spirit has wane on you, please confess it. Confess it to someone that you know. And if you don't have anybody that you know, please call me, confess it to me so that you will hear the liberating joy. You will experience the joy of God's forgiveness. Confess it. Girls, if you're confessing women, if you're you're struggling with a sin, confess it to another woman. If you have nobody to confess it to, call Lauren or call Carol. Confess it. If you're struggling with pornography, men, Confess it. Say it. Get it out. Do not let it out of your sight. The Agostos has got a puppy recently, didn't they? Did y'all get a puppy? They got a puppy recently. And sometimes we think about sin like this puppy. It's cute, it's fuzzy, it's wonderful. But sin is not a puppy. Yeah, its teeth are a little sharp and they has. Sin is like a, a diamondback rattlesnake. When I was younger, my brother would go rattlesnake hunting, and he brought home one day a rattlesnake in a burlap sack, and he thought it would be fun to let it go in our front yard. So he called my mother out and said, Hey, Mom, I've got a present for you. And he let this rattlesnake out in the front yard. And I ran and got all my friends, and for like 30 minutes, I was the coolest kid in the town because I had the brother with the rattlesnake in the yard. And they all came over, and we were looking at it, and we were poking at it with a stick Stupid, but we did it. And we're watching this thing. And then my dad, he goes and he gets a garden hoe out of his garage. And he comes and he walks up and he knocks my brother out of the way and he chops that snake in pieces. And he says to my brother, do not ever play with this. And that's what you have to say to your hidden sin, friends. Do not play with it. Do not let it out of your sight. You chop it without compassion or hesitation. You confess it. What happened with Achan was that Achan was excommunicated from the people of Israel. That means he was once in communion with them and he was removed from communion. Because though Achan had a profession of faith, it was phony. And Achan was not a believer in the one true God. He was removed from the fellowship of Israel. And sometimes the church, on rare, very rare occasions, when they go through the process of church discipline with somebody who is unrepentant, they have to remove them from the fellowship of the church. It is rare. It is painful. But it is for the glory of God, the purity of the church, and the reconciliation of that believer. And Achan was excommunicated. It's a word that many of you probably have never heard said in church before. It's what Matthew 18 says should happen after you confront them, after you bring a group of men to confront them, and they still persist. And then you're to remove them from your fellowship, treat them as a non-believer because indeed they, the fruit of their life is that they are. And the power of this text is that every single one of us are Achan's that deserve to be excommunicated. But God lined all of Israel up and he took them tribe by tribes. and He took the tribe of Judah and he took the clans and he took the clan of the and He took the families and he lined them up. And he took the family of David and he lined them up man by man. And he took Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of God. And God, the father excommunicated his son for you. Banished Jesus outside of the city, and they hung him on a pike to die. Jesus Christ was excommunicated so that you might be brought into communion with him. And they piled up stones on Achan, and they made a memorial so that whenever you saw this pile of stones, you'd remember the holiness of God. And that sin is cunning, it's communal, and it has consequences. Would anybody ever remember? Well, God remembered. Because 700 years later, in the book of Amos, this is what Amos wrote I will allure her, her, and I will bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Acor. Where Achan was stoned, a door of hope. If you're still hiding sin, then today is your day of trouble. If you have unconfessed sin, then you are in the abyss. If you haven't confessed it, you're in the valley, the valley of trouble. But today could be your day of hope. If you walk through the door of hope, as Amos says, the Valley of Achor today, friends, in your hidden sin can become the doorway of hope. There's a church in Jackson, Mississippi, old, old church called First Presbyterian Church, who decided that they would go back through the history of their church and look and see if they had ever codified racism in their church. And so they went back and they searched through the session minutes, the elder minutes of their church. And they found in their bylaws, in their session minutes, in 1954, there was a decision made to bar African-Americans from worshiping in that church or for joining membership. And that church's practices have long since changed, but that was on their books. And so they decided to confess it to their church and then to confess it to their community. They took a 1954 sin and they confessed it for the healing of Jackson, Mississippi. Some of you need to take your 1989 sins, your 1998 sins, your 2016 sins, and confess it for the healing of your family. And let today be not a day of trouble for you, but walk through the door of hope. Because Jesus was the one, friends, who was banished for you. Jesus was the one who was stoned for you, crucified on the cross, the ultimate day of trouble, so that your day of trouble might become a beautiful door of hope. So Trinity, guests, let's walk through it together. In a minute, when we come to take the Lord's Supper, come to this table repentant. And if there are sins that you need to confess, would you please come and confess them? You're welcome to confess them to me if you need to or anyone else who you feel comfortable confessing that sin to. But come, because if you're still in your sins, today is the day of trouble. But if you confess it and you see Christ, the one who was banished for you, the one who was excommunicated for you, if you see him as the one who was put outside the city so that you might be brought in to the people of God, then today becomes your door of hope. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will help us as a people to recognize the deceitfulness of sin, to recognize that it is communal, and to confess it if we are hiding sin. Father, we need your help. Would you move in us now, we pray.